Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, June is LGBTQ Pride Month. We'll go to the Parliament House Resort Exhibit at the LGBTQ History Museum of Central Florida. Queer spaces are a refuge. Preserving this history can have higher stakes as people and places disappear. We'll discuss Orlando and the global fight against apartheid. The Orlando City Council voted for a resolution that strongly condemned apartheid and the actions of the South African government. And we'll talk about the French in colonial Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Parliament House Resort, located near the intersection of Colonial Drive and Orange Blossom Trail in Orlando, catered to the LGBTQ community from 1975 to 2020. The complex provided a safe space with a lakeside beach, pool, disco, several bars, the Footlights Theater, and hotel rooms. Nikki Fragala Barnes is a Ph.D. student at the University of Central Florida and serves on the board of directors for the LGBTQ History Museum of Central Florida. Parliament House opened as the first of a small chain of hotels in 1962. In 1975, it was purchased by two established entrepreneurs, Bill Miller and Michael Hodge, of Orlando, and reopened in 1975 as a gay resort called Parliament House Resort Hotel. It closed in November 2020, in large part due to the lockdowns on travel and closings of many tourist attractions in an effort to respond to the public health crisis of the COVID-19 worldwide pandemic. Exhibits focusing on the Parliament House are online as part of the virtual LGBTQ History Museum of Central Florida. One of the artifacts shown is a program from the Parliament House Resort Grand Opening, which took place September 29th through October 5th, 1975. The opening page contains an enthusiastic welcome from new owners, Bill Miller and Michael Hodge. It's clear from the messaging that this was circulated in advance of the event, encouraging prospective guests to book with details and rates on room reservations. $14 for a single and $16 for a double with a $3 upcharge for an additional person and a note that pageant contestants could take advantage of a special rate. Detailing the Miss and Mr. Parliament House pageant, the program also contains a lined entry form for entering the pageant. The Miss Parliament House pageant would take place on Monday, the 29th of September with sportswear, swimwear, evening wear, and talent. And the Mr. Parliament House pageant took place on Wednesday, the 1st of October, with self-expression, swimwear, and talent. It's filled with drink specials and details with an opening cocktail party ahead of the festivities that begin in force on Thursday with a barbecue luau on the beach of Rock Lake 
and a disco party that night with a dance contest. Friday and Saturday featured a Playhouse Theater production of the Broadway musical MAME. And Sunday is, quote, to rest and give everyone a chance to unwind from a fun-filled week, end quote. There's a special boxed announcement invitation to a grand opening kickoff cruise out of Daytona on Sunday, the 28th of October for $9.95 a person with 25 cent beers. Of special interest are the included advertisements from vendors present on the property and local establishments. A haircut shop, the Gay Blade, a boutique and florist are listed as within the resort and the Palace Club on Humphreys is also listed open for dancing until 6 a.m. Alexis Rodriguez is a graduate student at the University of Central Florida and vice president of the LGBTQ History Museum of Central Florida. Rodriguez's research focuses on a photography collection that features images of female impersonators at the Parliament House. Due to the lack of information, I began to use social media platforms such as Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as tools in collecting information and contacting sources. Within the collection was a series of calendars, which fortunately had the photographer's watermark. By contacting him through Instagram, I conducted an oral history related to the calendars, performers, and the photographer, who's also a female impersonator. Through developing this connection with Locke Robertson and discussing with his associates the museum's project in gathering Central Florida's LGBTQ history in person and through social media, others join in offering some of their stories and providing potential contacts. In addition to Instagram, I also managed to collect information through crowdsourcing on the museum's Facebook page, which then promoted a discussion among patrons at Parliament House Orlando, allowing me to examine the relation between collective and individual memory. Alexis Rodriguez found that social media contact was not sufficient to complete his historical research in 2020. While the use of social media aided in research and outreach, much of the history related to the, some of the photographs was kept alive through the preceding generation who saw the transformative years of Central Florida's LGBTQ community during the 1970s and 80s. This, of course, presented a dilemma, as many from the preceding generations were not familiar with platforms such as Zoom or video teleconferencing software programs, and many were at an age which made them more susceptible to the COVID-19 virus. After much deliberation and through taking the appropriate precautions, I began to conduct oral histories in person following CDC guidelines to gather as much history as possible, especially after the passing of Sammy Sangaus, or known on stage as Miss Sammy, who was both an Orlando icon and Broadway performer. His unfortunate passing after setting up a date for an interview further motivated me to seek out and preserve the history of Central Florida's female impersonation subculture. Through conducting and collecting oral histories which primarily focus on female impersonators, I came to realize the intricacies in attempting to preserve this history and how it plays into the issues of historical erasure of certain subgroups and cultures to the notion of collective memory. There is very little information about Florida's LGBTQ community prior to the 1960s. Rodriguez says that's because the community was largely closeted, but that changed. The arrival of several organizations and businesses such as the Kennedy Space Center in 1962, the University of Central Florida in 1968, and Disney World in 1971 increased development of various establishments which catered to the LGBTQ plus population. In 1972, Bill Miller, Michael Hodge, Jan Corin, Wally Wood, and Suhana, who eventually became known as a gay and lesbian gang, sought to create gay and lesbian clubs and bars in Orlando, two of which hold significance for both gay and female impersonation history. The Diamond Head 
and bottom and house landing. The Diamond Head, considered the first gay bar of Central Florida, was purchased by Bill Miller and Michael Hodge, and was a venue that provided a show bar for female impersonators and pageants such as Miss Diamond Head. The date of its closing is unknown. Parliament House Orlando, once a part of a hotel change in the early 1960s, was purchased by Bill Miller and Michael Hodge several years later and closed in November 2020. The significance of Parliament House in particular demonstrates the necessity of investigating other historic sites of memory. While Parliament House Orlando was considered a safe haven for Orlando's LGBTQ community due to social homophobia and recognized as, quote, one of the oldest gay resorts and entertainment complexes in the United States, end quote, the significance of this site expands to other community and subcultures. Within this gay resort was a Footlight Theater, where, after the Diamond Head, became a popular site within the national female impersonation subculture. Rodriguez says that the Footlight Theater at the Parliament House helped to develop Central Florida's LGBTQ community and link it with the national drag subculture. The popularity of pageantry, for example, placed Central Florida and South Florida in the periphery of the greater female impersonation subculture. As the creation of the state pageant Miss Florida in 1972 and subsequent subcategories allowed Florida's female impersonators to travel and participate in national pageantry, as well as bring the attention of potential visitors and residents to the region. The Footlight Theater also played a role within this as Miss Central Florida and other similar pageants were held at Parliament House Orlando as a precursor towards entering the national pageants. The development of these subcultures throughout an era of social homophobia should not be discredited as mere entertainment history, but rather an important development towards the historic narrative. A 1960s-style oval sign with multicolored rectangles used to welcome visitors inside the Parliament House Resort Complex, which is now an empty lot. To see the sign, visit the Florida Historical Society on Facebook. Nikki Fragala barnes explains why remembering the Parliament House is important. There are specific vulnerabilities present as members of the LGBTQ community who embody an identity that has been criminalized, oppressed, and persecuted public spaces could contain imminent danger. People who identify as queer often develop self-preservation coping behaviors to decrease the risks and punishments of visibility among the dominant heterosexual population. Presence itself becomes precarious. The emergence of queer spaces through bars, bookstores, etc., affords queer people places to belong. Because the typical landscape consists of places that are socially coded to welcome and reinforce mainstream, dominant, heteronormative culture, they have written out queer narratives and ways of being. Queer spaces are a refuge. Preserving this history can have higher stakes as people and places disappear. Nikki Fergala Barnes and Alexis Rodriguez are both with the LGBTQ History Museum of Central Florida, which has the Parliament House Resort exhibit online at floridalgbtqmuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find great new books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. 
Connie, it's sometimes easy to become so focused on local history that we forget the ways in which even the most remote areas can become involved in national or even international events. An article by Jacob Ivey in the summer 2019 issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly draws attention to an Orlando protest in the 1980s that was part of a global anti-apartheid effort to divest pension funds of holdings in companies that invested in South Africa. As Ivy describes it, the struggle against apartheid remains one of the most important and wide-ranging human struggles of the 20th century. The overthrow of the racist South Africa regime that initially came to power in 1948 has been considered one of the most enduring legacies of the post-colonial era. Connie, even during a globalized effort for change, Orlando seems to be an unlikely site for an extended anti-apartheid effort given the political climate at that time. Professor Ivy agrees, but he convincingly demonstrates the historical factors that laid the groundwork for the Orlando protests and the local dynamics that influenced both support and opposition to the demands for divestment of pension funds from companies invested in South Africa. Historically, a number of agencies, organizations, and civil rights leaders had condemned the South African government and praised those who opposed it. These included the Council on African Affairs, the NAACP, and Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. By the late 1970s, the anti-apartheid movement had developed a strategy beyond words. They targeted state and local government, universities, and other institutions to demand divestment of pension and trust funds. The event that triggered the change was the 1976 Soweto Uprising. Outraged by the actions of the South African government, the movement hoped to weaken the economic viability of the apartheid state. As Ivy notes, by 1980, the United States was by far South Africa's largest trading partner and had a total direct investment of over $2.3 billion. Altering American investment in the nation would have important consequences. Orlando was not alone in experiencing the call for divestment. In 1985, the topic was under consideration across the state. Students and faculty at Stetson University petitioned U.S. Senators Lawton Childs and Paula Hawkins to sponsor legislation for economic sanctions. University of Florida students staged a 40-day sleep-in outside the administration building in an attempt to persuade the UF Foundation Board to divest $3 million of its trust fund. Miami, Opelika, St. Petersburg, and Gainesville passed divestment resolutions. The Florida State Legislature began debates on the issue, although no legislation was enacted. How did all of this play out in Orlando? In the summer of 1985, it seemed unlikely that Orlando would play any role in the debates roiling the country. Mayor Bill Fredericks refused to discuss the issue, observing that any kind of action dealing with social and political problems in South Africa should be left up to the federal government. Although the city claimed to be unaware of how much of the city pensions funds were invested in South Africa, Orlando Sentinel put the figure at $22.2 million of the $100 million invested by the city. Mabel Butler, the first black woman elected to the Orlando City Council, voiced the feelings of many when she stated, 
We cannot say that we do not condone apartheid and yet let our money stay there. Action from activities in the black and Hispanic communities was not long in coming. And here is where Ivy argues that local history, local strategies for addressing controversy, and local means of exercising power influenced the response to the anti-apartheid movement. On the pro-divestment side, a coalition of community activists, religious leaders, and labor leaders mounted a campaign that drew on the strategies that were so successful in the civil rights movement. Anti-apartheid marches, petitions, appearances at city council meetings and rallies characterized the actions of the coalition. Their efforts were met with efforts to prevent marches, the creation of commissions to study the issue and delay action, and the assertions that divestment could hurt pensioners. Finally, the city claimed that firms invested in South Africa followed the Sullivan Principles, a series of guidelines that call for equal treatment in the workplace. While many in the movement saw the principles as a positive step forward, others condemned it as a half measure. Companies were rated under guidelines with the highest rating making good progress. A company could be making progress while working with the racist labor system of South Africa. Connie, did Orlando reach a resolution between the competing positions? To put the matter in plain language, the city argued for practicality. The coalition viewed divestment in moral terms. At issue was the question, could a plan be created that could be both morally and financially sound, weakening the South African government while also preserving the pension plans of 2,300 full-time employees and 500 retirees? And if divestment occurred, would it be the full divestment supported by the coalition or the limited divestment offered by the city? In spring 1986, an 11-member commission made up of bankers, economists, finance professors, and representatives of labor unions, the coalition, and the pension funds met for three months to investigate the issues and recommend a resolution. The results of this effort were inconclusive, and on May 19, 1986, the Orlando City Council voted for a resolution that strongly condemned apartheid and the actions of the South African government as deplorable and a violation of human rights, but supported a watered-down divestment program that only affected some $400,000 of funds. Even with its limited response, Orlando became part of a larger national divestment movement that Ivy notes by the end of 1986 included 21 states, 68 cities, 10 of the nation's largest counties, and 100 educational institutions. U.S. investment dropped from $2.8 billion in 1983 to $1.3 billion in 1985. In October 1986, Congress overrode a veto by President Ronald Reagan to implement a modified anti-apartheid act. Although the anti-apartheid efforts in Florida and Orlando were not as large or as successful as elsewhere in the country, Ivett concludes that the movement matters because it taught individuals to sympathize and act on the suffering of others, whether in their neighborhoods, their state, their nation, or on the other side of the globe. His words echo those of Ely Wiesel, Holocaust survivor, who addressed the Florida State House of Representatives in 1987. To remember the dead 
is to remember the living. It means we must remember all those who need us, any victim, anywhere. His or her place is in our memory, in our hearts. Any person who suffers may count on us. The victims of apartheid in South Africa are to us, must be to us, as important as the victims of anti-Semitism airing anywhere. One of the most important issues of the 1980s. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Before the Spanish established the first permanent European settlement in what would become the United States at St. Augustine, the French established Fort Caroline. Holly Baker has more. In 1564, René Goulain de Laudonnere, a French Huguenot explorer, founded Fort Caroline near present-day Jacksonville in Duval County. The fort served as a refuge for French Huguenots who were being persecuted in France for being Protestant instead of Catholic. On September 20, 1565, 400 Spanish soldiers commanded by Pedro Menendez de Avalos attacked Fort Caroline in an effort to expel the French from Florida. Nearly 150 French colonists were killed, while one Spanish soldier was lightly wounded. Dr. Christophe Boucher is an associate professor of history at the College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina. I recently talked to Dr. Boucher about his article in the fall 2018 issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly titled, The Greatest Dissemblers in the World, Tamuquas, Spaniards, and the Fall of Fort Caroline. Fort Caroline was founded in 1564. And it was, the, it was founded after uh, Jean Ribot uh, visited the area in 1562. So in 1562, what you had was really more of a reconnaissance. Uh, the French were trying to get a feel for the area. And in 1562, uh, Ribot's expedition had actually uh, navigated along uh, the northern coast of Florida and they had actually met a number of Timucua leaders. And in 1564, um, Laudonniere uh, came back with a French contingent. Laudonniere actually made his way along the coast. Uh, he passed Northern Florida, but then after a little while, uh, him and his men came to realize, you know, maybe the best spot would be, you know, what, what they call the May River. Uh, which is, you know, today the St. John's River. The Tamuqua initially welcomed the French colonists, but the relations soon soured between them. Laudonnaire caused tension by forming alliances with both Satariwa, a Tamuqua chief, and Chief Utina, another Tamuqua chief, and the enemy of Satariwa. By the time that the Spanish arrived in Florida in 1565 to drive out the French colonists, the Tamuqua were eager to help them. The Timucuas received him well. I mean, I think at this point they had heard of the troubles uh, the French were causing diplomatically. And so they provided help uh, for the Spaniards that was absolutely necessary. And the, the first thing they did for them was actually not to fight them. Actually, they, wel they, they welcomed them uh, in, in the area. Uh, the leader of the village also gave the Spaniards a large dwelling where they could put their equipment, and that became the core of the Spanish base of operation in the area. Native Americans also provided some important geographic information. 
At first, when Menendez arrived in the area, of course, the first thing he did when he arrived in Florida was to try to locate this French fort because he knew that the clock was ticking. Uh, Native Americans here again provided some important information where they helped actually uh, Menendez to locate uh, the French fort. The Tamuqua not only told Menendez how to find Fort Caroline, but they also indicated that he and his men could reach the fort by land using a route that the French didn't even know existed. Dr. Boucher. Native Americans told him that there was actually a way to, to hit the French fort by land. And, and originally what Menendez wanted to do was to go by ship and, and attack, you know, sail into the St. John River and, and attack the French there and possibly, you know, create some sort of a, of a blockade. But here suddenly Native Americans told him, well, you know, there is a way to get, to get there on land. The defenses of the French fort at that moment were really facing the river. And um, this trail allowed the Spanish to, to actually hit them from behind. And uh, so that was another important, uh, important element. And actually, two Native Americans guided the Spaniards uh, to the fort. So, you know, and the French did not expect to see these guys coming out of nowhere. I mean, they expected to see them coming from, from the sea, not from the land. So that was a problem. Pedro Menendez and his men marched for days through the swamps of northern Florida during a raging hurricane to reach Fort Caroline for the surprise attack. The attack was so sudden and so unexpected. It was, you know, windy, rainy, and the French in Fort Caroline were really uh, diminished in terms of troops. There's a, an artist who was there, uh, Jacques Lemoyne de Morgue, uh, who had himself been injured in a battle against a Native Americans, so uh, he could not uh, board the ships. So, you know, there were mainly women, children, uh, a few soldiers who were left, but, but really Fort Caroline was extremely weak in terms of uh, garrison. So the, the Spaniards pretty much managed to enter the fort and literally catch the entire group of settlers by surprise. And the attack was very, very quick. Lemoine, uh, Jacques Lemoine de Morgue uh, describes, you know, his, the situation. I mean, pretty much he heard some noise. He just had time to, to get up and realized by then already the Spaniards were in the middle of the settlement and it was time to, to run and run in the forest, pretty much. There, were, there was a number of survivors, uh, but most of the prisoners were killed on, on land by the Spaniards. At the time of the assault by the Spanish, Fort Caroline sheltered more than 200 French colonists. About 50 inhabitants survived the attack, including women and children, and a few musicians. Laudonnaire, the artist Jacques Lemoyne, and a few others were able to escape to ships and return to France. The destruction of Fort Caroline brought an end to the possibility of a French Florida and ushered in an era of Spanish rule. It has been presented, this event has been presented in the larger context of a conflict between the Spaniards and the French. And in the process, we've lost uh, sight of Native Americans, but, but Native Americans played an important role. And, and what is important too is that the fall of Fort Caroline was also important in terms of colonial American history because it completely redirected uh, the French colonial interests in the region. You know, had the French not been defeated, maybe Florida would have been uh, an area of uh, colonial expansion for the French. Now, after this defeat, the French like to focus much more on the Northeast. Um, but again, it, it shows that, you know, the, these events really redirected colonial American history in unsuspected ways. 
For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime at our content-rich website at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.